Okay, good morning everybody. How's everyone doing? Good, good. Um, today I'm carrying on a series that we started a while ago in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is retelling the story of the early church and what God did, in, did through it. And uh, it's a very exciting book. Uh, so far we've looked at the ascension of Christ. The risen Lord Jesus going up to be with the Father. We've looked at Pentecost where the Father sent the Spirit upon the people of of, uh, the believers. So that they could be uh, equipped and enabled to serve God in this world. We've looked at Peter's preach where um, 3,000 people were saved as he preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've looked at a general overview of what the Holy Spirit filled church looked like. It was a church that was committed to one another, dedicated to learning and to uh, being taught by the scriptures. Uh, It was a church that was dedicated to worship and it was a church that was evangelistic. They were always looking to bring this message of Jesus Christ to those around. And then last week, uh, Philip read to us the story of a a man who was uh, born lame, but who got um, miraculously healed uh, when the two of the disciples, Peter and John, uh, kind of commanded him in the name of Jesus to walk. And um, Philip had a sermon ready, but he felt moved by the Spirit for us just to spend some time praying and seeking God and asking for the Spirit to come and fill us and, 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 and that our, our view, our gaze on Jesus would just expand. And so we spent a lot of that time, it was a little bit of a different Sunday, it was just great just to kind of intercede really to pray that, that the Holy Spirit would fill us as a church. I want to make a point about this series so far. And that is that um, everything's been going well for the church up until this point. For at this moment, you're probably thinking, I want to be part of a church like that. Um, everything's going well. Uh, people are, are, are great friends all the time. It's like they're selling all their possessions and giving to those that have in need. Whenever they preach the gospel, it seems that hundreds come to know the, um, the Lord through their preaching. It's an exciting time to be part of. But Jesus said, he warned the disciples and said, you will, it won't always be easy. You will find uh, that you will persecute. There will be times of trouble. And actually today, the story we're looking at is the very first glimpse of that trouble. That glimpse of the kind of the gospel having people come against it. So that's what we're going to see today. And, it's, uh, and whenever in, in, in um, Acts, whenever something happens for the first time, it's worth taking a note of it. And thinking, why is this important? Why did the writer, Luke, put this in? Because it actually gives us clues as to what he's trying to show us. So, what I want to do today is I'm going to recap some of the story from Acts chapter 3. And pull out a couple of different points. Because Acts chapter 4, the part we're looking at today, comes straight out of Acts chapter 3. In fact, it's all part of the same story, really. So I want to make some points on Acts chapter 3. So we can really understand what's going on in Acts chapter 4. And I'll just use my clicker thing. Yes, it's working. Good. So, in Acts chapter 3, you have Peter and John going to the temple. Now, the the temple is the temple in Jerusalem. There's only one temple in Jerusalem. And it's the temple that all the Jews, if you live in Jerusalem, you would go to that temple. 
It was a place where you'd bring sacrifice to God. It was a place of, where it was kind of central to the community. And so every week, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of Jews and the early Christians would go and worship at the temple. And the main gate to that temple, the one right at the front, was called the gate of beautiful, uh, the beautiful gate. And so most people would flock through that gate to, um, to go and worship God. Now this story had this lame beggar. And he was always put every day at the temple gate, the gate called Beautiful. And so I want you to think about this. If you were a Jew, you would have known, you would have recognised his face. Because he had been there for, well he was 40 years old. He had been there all his adult life, put there to bed. Okay? So he's, a, he's, a, he's not like a celebrity, but he's, he's one of those people that the whole community would have known who he was. It's a bit like if you, anyone go to the Blue for their shopping. Well, you probably know Russell the Fishmonger, don't you? Because every time you go there, you see him. Or if you go, who goes to Surrey Keys to Tesco's for their shopping? Well, there's a guy there, his name's Ricky. He sits there most days with his dog. Um, he's from Manchester, a really nice guy. But if you, if you go to Tesco's every week, you would recognise him. He's not famous, but you know who he is. And if you were this, uh, you know, if you were a Jew going into the temple on a regular basis, you'd see this crippled beggar. He's been there for years and years and years. And then Peter and John go by, and he asks them for money. And Peter says, "Look at me." And uh, and the beggar looks at him and he says, "I don't have any money, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk." And so this man stands up and he doesn't just walk around. It says that instantly his feet and ankles were healed. And he goes skipping and running and shouting and singing and, and, and declaring Jesus to be his Lord and praising the Lord, it said. And so you can imagine all these people for years, it's at three o'clock in the afternoon. So lots of people are going off to pray and suddenly they're seeing this man that they've seen for year after year after year. They know he's the crippled beggar. Maybe they've given money to him in the past. Maybe they've been one of the ones helping him to get there. And suddenly he's jumping and leaping and praising God. You're amazed at this. It's a bit like, you know, if Stevie Wonder suddenly could see, everyone would be amazed. This is like a, mir- a miracle that's on a high level. So that's what happens. And I love the next line. It says, Peter, seeing his opportunity, addresses the crowd. He's like, oh, okay, here we go. Look, I've got an opportunity here. And he preaches the gospel. He preaches a very similar preach to the one where 3,000 people were saved. And he talks about how, um, you know, Jesus, uh, he was sent by God, but um, it was these guys here, it was you guys that crucified him. And now you need to repent of your sins and turn away for the forgiveness of your sin. And, uh, and so he's preaching and people are listening. They're looking at this dancing man who used to be uh, on the floor every day. And they're, they're thinking, man, this is amazing. Now at that moment, and we've got to chapter four now, at that moment, a, um, a group of people start coming. Now, they're, they're outside at the moment, but a group of people start coming towards Peter and John as they're preaching. And I want you to imagine, like, someone's coming up to me right now, and they don't want him to be preaching in the name of Jesus. And it says this, While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests 
the captain of the temple guards, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection from the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. But many of the the people who heard their message believed it, so the numbers of men were believed and now totaled about 500. Again, sorry, 5,000. Well done. Told you didn't get everything right. So, um, so can you imagine that? He's preaching, Peter and John are preaching, and the temple guards are coming. I don't know what happened. So they've arrested him, and they're, they're pulling him away, and he's like, repent, turn away from your sins, every one of you. And, and, and it, remarkably, hundreds of people repent and turn to Christ. Hundreds of people. Some, God was doing something there. Because if I was listening to that, I'd be like, okay, you want me to believe your message and follow Jesus? It doesn't look like it's doing very much good for you. <laughs> but no, they all say, no, we want to commit ourselves and, and trust in Jesus. And then it says, the next day, the council, council of all the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the religious law met in Jerusalem. Ananias, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the other relatives of the high priest. Now, I want to talk about Ananias and particularly Caiaphas for just a moment, because this isn't the first time we've been introduced to this couple of guys. This isn't just a kind of generic group of religious leaders. This is a very important and very significant group of leaders. And I want, you, I want to take you back right to Matthew 20, uh, 23, where Jesus, I think it's 23, let me just check. Um, yeah, where Jesus is having a go at the, the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and um, the, the temple leaders. And he's calling them hypocrites. And he's saying to them, you're, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside you look great, but on the inside there's death in you. You tell people that this is what you need to do. You make, make sure you fulfill all these laws, but you don't do them yourself. And Jesus attacks them quite strongly, very strongly in fact. And, um, and you've got to think, so Jesus had a, a, a three-year kind of ministry, and, and it always leads towards Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he's kind of well-known, he's famous. There are lots of people following him around. He's doing lots of miraculous stuff, and he's got a lot of, essentially, a lot of power in that area. A lot of people want to hear what Jesus says, and are listening to it. So now you've got a problem for the temple leaders. Because this man is kind of, it's like an uprising. There's people following him, and he's having a go at the leader's of the society. So then we meet Caiaphas in Matthew 26, I think it is. Uh, 26 verse 3, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or a might a riot might arise among the people. And then Judas goes to uh, the high priest and says, I can deliver Jesus into your hands. And so Jesus is arrested at Gethsemane 
and then is taken to um, Caiaphas's house. And then in verse um, 57 it says, Those who arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance. So he, Jesus is now arrested and standing before Caiaphas, and they ask him a whole load of questions. Uh, you know, and lots of people come and accuse Jesus of saying this and saying that. And Caiaphas, Caiaphas the high priest, says, "Well, what about you, Jesus? What do you say? Is, are you the are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Living God?" And Jesus said, "You have said so, but I say to you all." From now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And then in verse 27 it says, Early in the morning all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So Caiaphas and Ananias were the pivotal people. They were the people that wanted Jesus executed. And they were the people that made it happen. And even after Jesus was dead, Caiaphas or Ananias, I don't know which one, um, and, and a group of them went to Pilate and said... Uh, you need to put some, um, some people, some uh, soldiers on the grave of Jesus um, because he, he, he said this. Let me read it actually. It says, The next day, after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, this deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples might come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. So Ananias um, and, uh, and Caiaphas were right there in terms of the death of Jesus. I, just, I only said that because I wanted to ramp up the tension of the story, to be honest. <laughs> I want you to think, if you were Peter, what emotions are you going through? If you were Caiaphas, what emotions are you going through? I thought we had dealt with this Jesus movement. We killed him. And we even checked that no one could steal the body. And now people are coming up to me, and there's miracles happening, and people are saying he's alive, and that in the name of Jesus Christ, this guy who we know was a crippled beggar for 40 years. We know he was that. What's going on? And I think there's a kind of tension to kind of be thought through. So Peter and John have been put into prison for the night. They had been preaching. They took them away from the people they were preaching to. They've been put in prison. And then it says this in verse 7. They brought the two disciples and demanded, by what power... Or in whose name have you done this? Do you notice they're not denying the miracle, because they can't. They're saying, how have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? 
let me clearly state it to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom Jesus raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one you one referred to in Scripture where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is no salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now we live in a very diverse city. I love our city. I love the fact that some people, uh, you know, while it was snowing, I'm sure some of you went off to different places to sledge down hills, or maybe you kind of went all the way into town and just enjoyed the kind of quietness did anyone do this? Enjoy the quietness of the shops and stuff like that because no one else was around. I love our city. I love you go in the summer. It's bustling full of people from every nation under the sun. It's an amazing city. And uh, it's a really exciting place to be. Now we're told that our city and the, the whole of the West really is a pluralistic society. A pluralistic society. What does that mean? Well... Here's the definition. A pluralistic society is a diverse one where the people in it believe in all kinds of different things and tolerate each other's beliefs even when they don't match their own. Now I like the fact that we're in a diversity. It's very exciting. But there's a word in there that I I hear a lot related to this subject but I find interesting and that's the word tolerate. We tolerate one another. And the reason I find it like a funny word is because it's, it's con- it sounds conditional to me. We tolerate. We don't accept. We tolerate one another. See, I'm standing on a stage right now, and I believe that it can tolerate my weight. But if someone brought an elephant into this room right now and put it on this stage, no one would want to talk about it. No, it was standing on here. I'm not sure it would tolerate it. Now, I I feel confident because Stu made this. Stu, you made this, didn't you? I don't think I did, actually. Oh, didn't you? I love it. No, no. And the reason is because there's a tolerance level. Okay, At some point, it's going to break. I'm sure a lot of you were very excited to go through Suffolk Park and see, see ice over. How many people put their skates on? No one. Because there's a tolerance level on it. And uh, that word tolerant is, is, is quite an interesting one. And actually, I don't think our society's tolerance level is particularly high. <laughs> if I'm honest with you, I think we'll find the, very, the, the breaking point very quickly. In fact, Peter said this. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. He didn't say, you know, Peter didn't say, there's no other name in Jerusalem by which Jews can be saved. He didn't say, there's no other name in Palestine by which you can be saved. He didn't say, there's no other name in the Middle East by which you can be saved. He said, there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. 
If you're in India, there's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. Or South Africa, or North Africa, or South America, or North America. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. Now imagine if we took that slogan and put it on a London bus. I think we'll find the tolerance level of our cultural city. Uh, uh, We'll find it quite quickly after that. And I think the fundamental mistake in our society, and what we'll get into really, the, the fundamental mistake our society often makes is that it thinks that if you believe in the universal truth, that means it's true for everyone, then you're being arrogant. Then, then you're being, uh, you're being more... Uh, yeah, you're just being arrogant. I want to give you an example. Imagine if you go to a doctor and... Um, he says, I'm really sorry, you've got cancer. And the only way you can, uh, we can deal with it is radiotherapy. You're not going to turn around to him and say, Doctor, how dare you be so arrogant? How dare you say that there's only one way that I can be saved? How dare you tell me that the only thing I can do is radiotherapy? There are plenty of other people in the world saying, plenty of, giving me plenty of other options. Eat differently. Do this. Behave like that. That could sort your cancer out. How dare you, doctor, tell me that there's only one way that my cancer can go? You wouldn't say that, would you? Because, actually, it's not arrogant for the doctor to say there's one thing you can do for it, and it's um, to have radiotherapy. Or you flip the analogy around. You're a doctor, and a patient comes to you, and they've got cancer. You're not going to go... I'm really sorry, you've got cancer. Now, my perspective is that I think you need radiotherapy, and that's the only way that you can deal with it. But don't take my word for it. Go and look around. There's lots of other options. There's lots of other people saying other things. And so that, that, would, that wouldn't be right to do. If you were a doctor, it wouldn't be right. If you knew there was one way to be saved... It's not arrogant to tell someone what that way is. And actually, ethically, you'd be wrong to give them the idea that there's other ways of being um, healed, wouldn't you? And I just want to say this. As Christians, it's not arrogant to say that there's one way to the Father. It's not arrogant to say that God has given no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Now, Christians can be arrogant, and often are, and we look down on people, and it's horrible when you hear that kind of stuff, and that shouldn't happen, we shouldn't be arrogant, but actually Peter, when he was standing up, he wasn't being arrogant, he was telling it as it is, and when you go to your work situation, don't feel like, I'm being arrogant with what I believe, it's not arrogance if it's truth, and uh, I just wanted to kind of... Uh, if, if you do feel that, I just want to. I'm going to pray for you at the end. Actually, God will give you a boldness to just watch the difference between arrogance and standing for truth. Now, listen. A doctor can give advice, but a patient needs to choose to accept the advice. We had a gentleman in our church a while ago who had cancer, um, and he. I, I, I think he had a, a phobia of, of, of sorting it out, but he didn't feel he'd, he'd be all right. He'd get better. The radiotherapy, I can do that, but I'm sure I'll be better eventually. 
And uh, we tried to convince him to go and, and sort it out with the doctor. Eventually, of course, he did die. It could, have, it could have been sorted out so easily, but he did die in the end. And essentially, you know, he knew what the truth was, but he had to choose to accept it. Peter's preached three times in Acts so far. The first time, 3,000 people were saved. The second time, a few hundred, maybe 2,000 were saved. And the third time, he speaks to Ananias and um, Caiaphas. And it seems they just reject it. And there's an element of, our job is to preach the gospel, to talk to people about Jesus, to, to be testament, to bring testimony about what God's doing. But actually, there's something, a, a peculiar mix of the person's got to accept it for themselves and God's got to do something within their heart for it to kind of come to life to them. It's like Paul said, you know, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. There's a job in salvation that we can't do and we can't force. It's got to be God that does it. Let's carry on reading. So it says, The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognised them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could not see the, uh, since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council, council could do. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What shall we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they've performed a miraculous sign and everyone in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in the name of Jesus again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never to speak again or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. Now I just want you to see the difference in Peter for that moment. On that night where Jesus was arrested and brought before Caiaphas, Peter was in the shadows, hiding Someone said to him, you're Peter, aren't you? You were with, the, with, with Jesus. And he said, no, 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 I wasn't. Three times. Someone said, are you one of his disciples? Were you with him? Yes, you were with him. And he said, no, I don't know this man. Hide away in the shadows. Trying to stay close, but trying to be far away enough not to be in trouble. And then you have him going into the temple. And the man who ordered Jesus' death. He stands in front of him and he preaches the gospel and then he says, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? What an amazing thing. And, you know, what's happened there is Jesus, after, after Peter denied Jesus those three times, Jesus restored him. And after he had restored him, the Holy Spirit fell upon him and something completely changed in Peter and now he's preaching the gospel with faith and courage. And again, that's why we need the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. I feel so much like the Peter, just kind of, I'm afraid to, to kind of say anything. I don't want to identify myself with Jesus often. Maybe you find that hard. Maybe, you know, at work, 
someone says to you, you're a Christian, aren't you? And you're like, well, you know, my perspective is, is Jesus is real, but you do whatever you want. Don't, you know, I don't want to get into this. I want to encourage us, let's be people that are filled with the Spirit and filled with boldness. So that actually, when we have those, those moments, we don't see them as kind of opportunities to be quiet and to kind of, let's get myself out of this, but opportunities for the gospel, to stand up and preach and to declare the truth to those around us. It'd be great, again, to pray for that at the end of that. I love the fact, you know, Ali was praying right at the beginning of this service. She was saying, the Bible is filled with people that made mistakes and yet God used them in mighty ways. And we, we make mistakes all the time, don't we? We're so, you know, we're so fallible. We just constantly, and yet God in his grace, by his spirit, uses us mightily. And so we want to we take heart and thank God for that. The story finishes by, the, it's by saying this. The council then threatened them further. But they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of the man who had been lame for more than 40 years. We live in a a pluralistic society that loves to think of itself as tolerant, but the tolerance threshold is low. And the message of the gospel is actually offensive because it suggests that there's only one name under heaven by which we can be saved. But the gospel is the hope for the world. The cross of Christ is the only way that we can know relationship with God. There's no other way. There isn't any other way. And I want to say to you, if you're, if you're not a Christian here today, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus here today, I want to tell you there is only one way to get right before God. And that is to say, I'm turning away from my old way of life and I'm turning to Jesus. I'm putting my trust in Jesus. I am going to orientate my life around Jesus. That's the only way. And you have to make a decision to do that. And I want to encourage you to think about that today. It's today a day for you to make a decision and say, I'm not here to live for myself. I'm not here just to do what I want to do. I cannot sort out my problems. I cannot sort it all out by myself. I need God in my life. I'm here for his glory. And so if that's you today, you're not a Christian. You haven't given your life to Jesus. You haven't turned towards him. I want to encourage you today to do it. At the end of the service, we're going to have an opportunity to pray for different people. I want to pray for people that are, are, are kind of ill or sick or have injuries. Um, and we want to just pray that the Holy Spirit will come and heal them. That in the name of Jesus you would be healed. But if you think, actually, do you know what? I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to turn away from my old way and give it to Jesus. Then I want you to come up as well and we can pray with you as well. There is no other name under heaven or earth by which we can be saved. So we have a choice, Christians, brothers and sisters. We can either internalise this truth that God's given us. Keep quiet. Just, you know, I I do believe it's the only way, but I'm going to keep that to myself. Or we stand up and we pray for boldness and we put our head over the parapet. And actually this is where the dangers start coming. 
what we're going to do? What kind of church are we going to be? Peter, in, in his book, 1 Peter verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 15 to 16, says, If you suffer, however, it must not for being, uh, be for being a murderer, for stealing, for making trouble, or praying, prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. And I want us to, I want us to just to pray for boldness as well. Now. Should we stand together?